Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. And I'm doing a series on the future of faith or the future of religion. And we have spoken with uh, some very interesting scholars and thinkers in the life of religion, including Phyllis Tickle, Brian McLaren, David Kinneman, Diana Butler Bass. And today I'm speaking with Carol Howard Merritt, Reverend Merritt is a Presbyterian minister. She served a congregation in Washington, D.C., now living in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And she's written a number of books on ministry to a new generation. She's charting the changes uh, that are happening uh, within religion and how the old forms simply are not working anymore. They are dying out. But new forms of faith and new forms of religious communities are taking shape. And she's here to talk about some of those. My guest is Reverend Carol Howard Merritt. Uh, she was formerly a pastor at Western Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. Now she and her husband and daughter and dog uh, live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And she is working on doing uh, writing and speaking engagements from there. She is the award-winning author of Tribal Church, published by Alban Institute in 2007, and Reframing Hope, also published by Alban Institute in 2010. She's the co-host of the God Complex radio broadcast. She writes for Huffington Post, and her blog, Tribal Church, is hosted by the Christian Century. Carol leads conferences nationally and internationally on cultural shifts and religion. And she is speaking with me via Skype from her home, her new home, still in boxes in Chattanooga. <laughs> uh, welcome, Carol, to Religion for Life. Thank you for having me. It's good to be on. Well, tell me about your book that came out in 2010, Reframing Hope. Uh, tell me about that title. What is Reframing? Well, I was reading George Lakoff, and he wrote a book about who's freedom. And he is a linguist who is also dabbling in politics. And, and he was talking about this whole issue of reframing. And oftentimes when you're a church leader or you work with church stuff, um, there's a lot of, of uh, just real desperate angst going on right now, mm -hmm. much like the rest of the economy or the rest of uh, the business world or, or many places in our society. Things are shifting with technology. There's shifting with cultural change. And people don't exactly know what to do. So in our little corner of the world, in this religious world, things are shifting generationally. There's not the cultural expectation that people go to church on Sunday morning in every place in the world. Um, so we're beginning to see a downturn in church attendance. Uh, the old faithful generation that really kept our churches running, they are beginning to um, not attend church or there's oftentimes dying. And so there, there's this crisis that's going on. So what I was hoping to do in this book is reframe the crisis, you know, uh, think about it in a different way. And I, I think about it um, 
uh, in the way that my husband thinks about uh, Nebraska football. Like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I don't know anything about football. So I'm, I'm really going into odd territory here for me. But I do know Nebraska fans are always talking about when they have a losing season, they talk about it as a rebuilding season. Okay, you know, they sure. don't say we suck. Put a positive spin on it. Right, right, right. And and I, I don't believe that it's just, you know, a, a trick of linguistics, a magic spin or, or um, you know, we're, we're in a state of denial and making ourselves feel better. I think that if we begin to think, hopefully, if we begin to envision a future that um, is life-giving, that that will do us a great good. So the idea of reframing. So, for example, Carol, you and I are both in the Presbyterian Church USA, and I suppose we could talk inside politics. But but just in general, uh, I think of our denomination probably gets the prize for losing the <laughs> largest percentage of members over the past 40 years. And, and there are certainly groups blaming each other. And, you know, we're not religious enough. We're not this enough. We're not that enough. It's a downer story. And you're saying, uh, let's reframe that story in a hopeful way. Am, am, am I right? Exactly, exactly. So so I was at an Episcopal event recently, and they were having, they put all these statistics up, and they kind of had the mainline church, which is the Methodist, Episcopal, Presbyterian, um, you know, the, those are the mainline churches. So mm-hmm. they had the mainline churches statistic, one line there. They had the Episcopal churches statistics where they extracted the Episcopal Church out of these out of this data. And then they had the Presbyterian Church's statistics extracted. And the reason why they had the Presbyterian Church's statistics taken out was they wanted to show that the Episcopal Church may be doing poorly, but they're not doing as bad as the Presbyterians. All right. We can always serve as a bad example. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, at least we're we're helpful in making other denominations feel better. But there is another way of looking at this. I mean, we I, I think about, you know, standing next to somebody at the end, uh, you know, a casket at the end of their life. You don't sit there next to the casket at the end of the life and say, you know, you're a real failure. You really stunk all those years. The reason why you're dying is because, you know, you just failed. And in in a little bit of ways, that's that's what's happening in our churches. We're looking at these churches that are dying. And some of them are dying because they were irrelevant and they didn't know how to reach out. And they didn't know how to make generational shifts. And then others are dying because they just had a lot of really, really good years, and it's it's the end of their span, and um, and I think just as you know, people don't sit around at funerals talking about what failures the person was. I, I think that we need to be doing what we do at funerals. We we are thankful for the ministry that's occurred. We're thankful for the last. 60 years of really amazing things that have occurred. You know, we're, we're happy when the church is out front in the civil rights and when we're uh, really working for social justice and when we're really working for gender rights and, and LGBTQ rights and marriage equality and we're, we're kind of out front 
um, with racial issues and 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 we have a real history of these sorts of things that I think we can be very proud of. Um, instead, we kind of sit and say, "Oh, we failed." If we could only do better, you know. Um, but there, there is a way of of looking for new life in all of this. Kind of looking on the horizon and seeing what what's next. What's what's happening? What is God doing next? What are what are people yearning for spiritually? If you're just joining us, this is Religion for Life. My name is John Shuck, and my guest is Reverend Carol Howard Merritt. She is the author of a couple of books, Tribal Church, Ministering to the Missing Generation, and Reframing Hope, Vital Ministry in a New Generation. She is uh, formerly pastor at Western Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. You can hear her on godcomplexradio.com and read her blog, tribalchurch.org. And Carol, I appreciate your honesty. You write uh, that you didn't grow up in the glory days of the church. Uh, in the 1950s when the buildings were full and the clergy were influential. In fact, I want to read just a little paragraph from your book that I appreciated. You wrote, I grew up in the midst of church news filled with clergy affairs, prostitution, and pedophilia. Throughout most of my ministry, I've worked in the shadow of these dark wounds of Christianity, laboring in a world in which the church is renowned for its sex scandals and conservative politics, a world in which people proclaim Religion poisons everything, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, This is the culture I know, and this, strangely, is the place I feel most comfortable. It is not that I'm happy about our current circumstances, or uh, it's just that I've not experienced anything else. When I introduce myself as a pastor at parties or neighborhood gatherings, I encounter little awe or respect. Instead, I'm met with a ravenous curiosity as if people did not even realize it was still possible to make that career choice. So, Carol Howard Merritt, I ask with ravenous curiosity, how did you make that career choice? Why ministry? Why is the church important? (laughs) That is a good question. (laughs) I was uh, raised as a conservative Southern Baptist, Uh and yet I constantly had this yearning to learn more about religion, um, to learn more about the Bible, and uh, and I was constantly um, going to... uh, to God for help in in many, many different ways. And so for me, I I sort of had these two streams growing up in me. I had this religion that was very oppressive in a lot of ways. Um, It was a religion that was telling me I can't speak. It was a religion that was telling me that um, women should have a certain place in the home and a certain place in society. And there was real tension with women even working at that time. Mm -hmm. So I had this this one stream, but then I had this other stream that was also growing up within me that was very um, liberating in the sense that I, I felt like God had a, a plan, a purpose for me that was beyond um, simply uh, working um, – you know, doing dishes in the home and serving my my spouse as a helpmate, and and somehow I was able to really flourish in this other stream. It took me a, a very long time to understand that I was being called into the ministry. In fact, I went to a fundamentalist Bible college, and um, and I think it was almost reaction against that culture that 
it finally kind of formed me into into uh, becoming a minister. I remember I was visiting a friend. Her name was Sue Duffy, and she was um, in a nursing home. So I would go and I would help her with her taxes, and I'd run errands for her and, and do all sorts of things. And she was really young. Um, she was in her 60s, but she was in this nursing home because she was paraplegic and becoming quadriplegic. And she used to always tell me when I, when I would struggle with these um, two streams within me, she would always say, but Carol, it, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, you, you can be a minister. You can um, go to seminary. You can study theology. And uh, so she was part of the Presbyterian Church, and she's the reason why I became Presbyterian. So, you know, I guess for me, it was trying to latch on to this life-giving stream that was helping me in so many ways, even as religious religion itself was, was rather abusive. So you really learned from that experience about reframing. How to reframe life's questions, how to reframe faith, and how to find a positive look on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Well, uh, you you write a a great deal about, in fact, the subtitle of both of your books has to do with a new generation. So you write about people of a certain age, let's say 20s and 30s, and and I want you to talk about that, but I'll introduce it this way. I'm thinking of just my own situation, my congregation here in, in the Bible Belt of East Tennessee. We're a green church uh, advocate for, uh, you know, uh, against mountaintop removal, mining or whatever. We have same gender holy unions between us and the UU church, probably the only ones who do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so I look out now I've been there seven years and I look out in the congregation and suddenly I'm seeing people who are in their 20s and 30s and I'm thinking, wow. What do, what do I do with these wonderful people? Now? I'm not I'm not sure. Tell me about this age group. How does the church minister with them? Yeah, it's been sort of the idea, and certainly when I was in my twenties, the the overarching idea in the United States and in, in kind of religion was was that you had to be conservative to get the young people. And so there was this sense that um, the evangelicals had all the young people, and so you needed to be like that in order to um, to to get the young the young folks in the pews. And like you, I think a lot of churches, um, and like the churches I served, we found that um, it wasn't necessarily uh, conservative ideas, conservative religious politics. Um uh, that were drawing people in. Oftentimes, people wanted to know that there was something other than kind of the Fox News religion out there. I think people who are who are doing really good ministry with young adults, what they're saying is that there are a few things that that are are very compelling. Um, spiritual practices. Are, are very compelling for young adults. You know, you see, uh, like I said, for many years, we were told that we needed kind of this high-tech sound equipment, these these um, images flashing in worship all the time to get the young people in. And, and soft hits from the 80s, I think it was. Absolutely, because <laughs> we can't get enough of those. Right. <laughs> 
And, and, you know, meanwhile, all these 20s and 30 year olds were rolling up their yoga mats and going uh-huh. to uh, the yoga studio just to get some silence and to meditate and get in touch with their bodies and breath and their their spirits. And, and there are so many of these amazing spiritual practices that we have within our traditions and that we can learn from other religious traditions. So spiritual practices are, are a big thing. Social justice issues, you mentioned the environment. Um, uh, there's a lot of yearning for economic justice, and we can see that in the Occupy movement um, and, and other uh, movements that have sprung forth recently among young adults. And also, people are beginning to question relationships, question marriage. What does that mean um, when you have people who aren't able to marry because they're moving from job to job, from place to place, and they're not able to, to find partners as, um, as young as we have traditionally uh, earlier, and also marriage equality. What, what does marriage mean now in, in moving into faithful covenantal relationships? So these social justice issues, these issues of fairness, both for our community together and also for the earth are important. And then finally, I would say um, learning how to grow community uh, we're in a time when people have to move every two and a half years. Um, they have to move from job to job. Many times people have unemployment. The rates of unemployment among young adults are very high. Mm-hmm. The rates of uh, lack of health insurance, lack of benefits are very high. So we have a generation where the safety net of society, of caring for one another, really isn't there And I think this is where churches really can have an important impact because we've been we've been growing spiritual communities for many years. And so I think churches are able to be uh, to respond in, in very meaningful ways. I know. As I walked through the parks at the Occupy movement, it's almost been, I mean, it's been a little over a year since the Occupy movement started. Um, I would talk to people and they not only had this yearning for protest and economic justice, but they also had this real yearning for community and caring for each other in new ways. Reverend Carol Howard Merritt is my guest. She's speaking with me via Skype from her new home in Chattanooga, Tennessee. She is the author of a couple of books published by Alban Institute uh, called Tribal Church, Ministering to the Missing Generation, and her latest, uh, Reframing Hope, Vital Ministry in a New Generation. Thinking about the institutional church and sometimes part of that institutional talk, and I have to say I'm part of this too, is you know keeping people in the seats or keeping the old structures moving. But boy, that seems to be a rather uh, depressing cause. But if we could think of things in terms of a new way of reframing our ministries of vitality to what is really happening with people, and you seem to have found that. What, what are some kinds of communities that you see presenting green shoots of hope? Well, I am very excited about what is happening with food um, nationally. Uh-huh. You know, 
food is another one of those, you know, very physical, very basic Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's right on the bottom rung, you know, uh, sort of thing. Absolutely. But people are beginning to think of food in their spiritual communities in a new way. We saw this in uh, at Western Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., where we started this, this soup kitchen. And, and actually, this happened way before I got there. Um, but they started the soup kitchen. It was kind of a regular soup kitchen. Um, we served breakfast. We flipped some some pancakes. And and then they, they began to, to think about about it a little bit more and they hired a chef and the chef really challenged them to think about um, the breakfast as something that didn't just happen uh, like we would have breakfast but it might be the only uh, meal that our guests had that day so how, how could we think about breakfast in a healthier way so oftentimes we would serve um, broccoli or or some sort of green vegetable at breakfast. And then we began to think more about, well, how could we um, not contribute to the problem of petroleum, of moving this food from uh, across the United States to our kitchen, but how could we begin to work with local farmers in order to present meals, um, breakfast, and, and then we moved on to dinner. And then we began to, we began a farmer's market in which we were able to um, help the whole community uh buy produce from local farms. And then we began to work with area uh, uh, farms and area gardens where people would bring vegetables and bring um, fruits to Miriam's. And we would begin to glean uh, with on different farmers. So there again, a very, very old, ancient idea of gleaning where poor people would come into the fields after um, uh, most of the crops had been harvested and, and would begin to bring those uh, remaining food and, and live off of that. We began doing that in a new way with Miriam's Kitchen. Having these community gardens allows people to have more access to um, a greater variety of food and, and really healthy food. So we see that happening. We see a lot of churches that are um, being revitalized through art programs. So people are beginning to think of not just revitalizing their church or getting more butts on the pew mm -hmm. or you know making sure those budget dollars line up, but they're beginning to see their whole neighborhood and thinking about who are the artists in our neighborhood? Who can we support? Um, and who can we partner with by giving studio space, by giving gallery space, by by hosting receptions for artists? And, and so we have this happening uh, kind of all over. My friend um, Nanette Sawyer, she began a church and an art gallery, and it became part of who they were as a congregation to be surrounded by this beauty and to meditate on it and to um, uh, think of themselves as creative community in this creative place. So we see a lot of things happening with food. We see a lot of things happening with arts. Um, 
And we see a lot of things happening with uh, economic justice. But watching the Occupy movement and seeing the religious movement grow out of it has been has been very insightful. I don't think we know what's going to happen with that, but but we're kind of on the edge, um, kind of kind of watching what is taking place there. So we see a lot of. Um, Unitarian Universalists, a lot of Quakers who are involved with the Occupy movement. And um, so so it'll be interesting to see what goes on. Catching up with Reverend Carol Howard Merritt on Religion for Life. Uh, She's the author of Tribal Church, Ministering to the Missing Generation and Reframing Hope, a Vital Ministry in a New Generation. Uh, You can find Carol at God Complex Radio dot com and her blog, tribalchurch.org. Just a, a minute or two left, Carol. Are you working on a new book or project? Yes, I am. I'm writing a book, a handbook for recovering from fundamentalism. Well, there you go. So, that should get an audience. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, a group of, of people in our country right now who grew up with a certain religion, believing that religion was about um uh, you know, religious politics and in the religious right, and um, that Jesus was coming back any second now. So we didn't really have to think about the future of the environment. We didn't really have to think about uh, you know long term planning. We believe that women shouldn't speak in church, or or we believed you know so many things. So. I, I struggled through that. It took a long time. And um, so I, I just wanted to write down a little bit of my own experience and what um, I see other people kind of struggling with as well. Well, I look forward to that. And perhaps when it comes out, I'll have you back on the program if that's all right. That would be excellent. I'd love to be here. Carol Howard Merritt, my guest on Religion for Life. Thanks, Carol. Thanks, John. Holston Presbytery is going to be welcoming Carol Howard Merritt as Theologian in Residence, February 2013. That is every Tuesday in February from 10 until 1. That includes lunch, and it is free and open to the public. And she will be speaking about uh, her ideas regarding reframing hope. And you've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find information about upcoming shows as well as blog entries and all kinds of wonderful things at my website, religionforlife.com. That's religionforlife.com. You can follow Religion for Life on Facebook, Twitter, and download podcasts from iTunes. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. Be well.